Hey, Leah. Hey, Fallon. And hey, listeners. Uh, We are the hosts of a podcast called The Secret Life of Canada. We are a history podcast. Yeah, and we've covered topics, things like the gold rush or the bay blanket. Yes. Kind of unconventional stories, though, that you might have missed in your Canadian history class. So we're here to uncover those secrets. That's right. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You are listening to Alone, a love story, and I'm Michelle Parisi. Chapter 15, The New World. Food. Bertie's telling me a story, chatty, 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 excitable. Something they made at school, artwork. I'm only half listening as I scramble to make dinner out of whatever's in the fridge. She's five and in senior kindergarten at a new school, in this new neighborhood, in our new life. And then she's holding it in front of me, a drawing of two buildings. Under it, in her signature mix of upper and lowercase handwriting, it says, I have two homes. They are across the strip from each other. I like that we live across the strip from each other. The homework was, draw and write about your home. My homework is not to cry, to not burn this crap dinner I'm trying to cook, to not fall apart, to not fall down the well. My homework is to smile and say to her, that's so great, Bertie. To kiss her and give her a squeeze. To take a photo of her drawing and post it on Instagram with hashtag modern family and hashtag co-parenting. And hashtag totally worth it. Because in making it public, it makes it more true. But in the darkness, at the very core of me, where I'm holding everything together to make her this pasta and not cry, I really want to write, hashtag she was supposed to have one home, and hashtag we should have been worth it. We should have been worth it. Hashtag thanks a lot, you fucking asshole. But I just make the pasta. I hold in the tears and the anger and the blinding, corrosive feeling of failure. And I just make the pasta. I make it. I just make it. This hang-up about food. This struggle to make dinner. In this new life, anything to do with food, I just can't get right. I can never figure out the amount of groceries to buy or how much food to make for dinner. Vegetables are always going bad in the fridge. I always run out of milk for Bertie or end up throwing half the carton out. And then there's eating alone. Food doesn't taste good when it's just me. I can't enjoy it. It's a real problem I still struggle with. Eating a meal with people you love is the most important part of Italian life. It's basically a sacrament. Everything important happens at the table. It's where you talk about your crappy day at school or work, where you laugh at each other's stories or just at each other, all while eating the lasagna you made together. It's where you talk about politics and end up getting into an argument where one person cries and someone else defends them while putting the espresso on and another person says, 
Sorry. The table is where you make up, where you pledge to do better while you eat rum cake for dessert. It's where you hear news of a new baby in the family and where you hear about someone's death. It's where you bring your first love to meet your family and scare the shit out of them because the meal lasts hours and hours. We never leave the table. We eat and talk and laugh and shout for hours. It's the best. So how can you expect me to eat alone after 40 years of eating like that? Dancing. We loved dancing together. I fell in love with him on the dance floor, you know. Back in 1999, when the ex-husband was just the scientist. Each week, we'd all go to the dance cave, which is exactly what it sounds like. My boyfriend at the time, the musician, was the one that introduced me to the place, and I ended up spending most of my 20s there. When I watched the scientist dance, I felt electrified. He danced, I danced. I'd watch him, and he'd watch me. Later... When we were a couple, we danced together all the time. And when we did, it was pure joy I'd see on his face. He did crazy, hilarious dance moves, and I'd be so embarrassed. But also, I couldn't stop laughing. I loved his crazy dancing. We had these moves we'd do together, these routines we'd bust out at whatever Italian wedding we happened to be at, which with a family as big as mine was always. My cousins adored him. They loved that this big, tall, waspy guy had no shame and would tear up the dance floor. Sometimes, when we'd lock eyes and get into one of our silly routines, the dance floor would part and everyone would make a little circle around us. I would be so uncomfortable with everyone looking, but he was so into it. It was infectious. My favorite part of these wedding receptions was when the old Italian waltzes would come on, all warbly accordions, and the old people would come out on the floor and partner dance so beautifully. The husband would always grab my mom or one of my aunts and pull them onto the dance floor with him. He didn't have a clue how to tarantella, but damned if he didn't try. He'd whip the older women around the floor and they'd have huge smiles on their faces, even though he was terrible at it. I'd watch him and my heart would swell a thousand sizes, especially listening to my cousins. He's the best. You married the best. I thought so too. I really did. So is it any wonder their hearts broke when they heard what he did? Like all our friends and family, they felt betrayed too. It was like the day you realized the mall Santa's just a drunk old guy wearing a fake beard. No one in my family could believe he wasn't that guy on the dance floor. That guy who made my face light up. But hang on, I was talking about dancing. Everywhere we lived together, we danced. 
In the tiny basement apartment we shared the year before we got married, he'd grab my arm and slow dance me to whatever song we were listening to as we cooked dinner, his head grazing the low ceiling. In the first condo we bought together after we were married, we got this new stereo, and there we danced to Outkast and Justin Timberlake CDs in the big open concept loft, like we were the only two people at a club. Each Christmas when we decorated the tree, we'd listen to the Boney M Christmas album and Elvis's Christmas, and even to those cheesy old recordings, we'd still at least have one dance. Several times a year in the condo, we'd have these huge parties with 40 or 50 people from his world and mine all mingling. Work colleagues, people from my soccer team, old school friends, cousins, siblings, all dancing to mix CDs I'd make. At 4 a.m., once everyone was gone, we'd clean up the bottles and the glasses, just the two of us. And then, dancing slowly in the kitchen, we'd talk about the night, our bodies pressed close, tired. In the house we bought when I was pregnant, there were suddenly a lot of rooms to dance in. If I think hard enough, we probably did have at least one dance in every room of that house. But the place we danced most was the kitchen. When Bertie was born, she became part of our dance parties, her face beaming as we twirled her across the floor or as she watched us slow dance. Once, we danced to Rock Lobster, falling on the ground each time they sang, Down, 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 just like when we were teenagers. God, I love that night. Her laughter, his smile at me as we lay on the kitchen floor. I can still see his face. I can see his expression exactly as it was. That was love. Even if it's hard to imagine now. A year into our separation, he complained to me that none of the women he was meeting liked dancing. He wished someone would dance with him the way we once did, and he wondered if I had any suggestions for where he should go. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Revival February 2013, one year exactly from when the bomb first dropped. I'm out with three of my favorite girlfriends and trying really hard not to feel the lonely, that monster that sits in the pit of my gut whether I'm alone or not. The lonely is such a bastard, it never lets its claws out of me. We're out dancing in a bar called Revival drinking tequila like water. I see a super hot guy standing with a group of people, and something about him makes me want to get closer to him. No, he's not the man with the white shirt. Not yet. I'm walking towards super hot guy, trying to catch his eye, when a different man steps in front of me. He says, hey, with a nod of his head, so casually, so effortlessly, like he's been waiting there for me the whole night. No, it's not him either. Not yet. This guy is cool and cute and dressed really, really great. 
There's an immediate click between us, and I forget all about the original guy I was walking toward. We just start dancing and talking. At first, we try to guess each other's ages, and though he's convinced I'm younger than him, I know he will be wrong. I know I will be older. I'm always older. It turns out I'm right, but he's on this side of 30, so that's something. Then I make a game of trying to guess his astrological sign. I guess right on the first try. Taurus. He laughs. All right, smarty, guess the exact day then. And just because I think the universe is always up to something, I say the ex-husband's birthday. And again, I'm right. They have the exact same birthday. Yeah. We dance some more, and then he says, So when's our first date? Like he likes me for real, not just for a hookup. So I do what I've never done up until now. All these firsts. I tell him I have a kid. Hey, Leah. Hey, Fallon. And hey, listeners. Uh, We are the hosts of a podcast called The Secret Life of Canada. We are a history podcast. Yeah, and we've covered topics, things like the gold rush or the bay blanket. Yes. Kind of unconventional stories, though, that you might have missed in your Canadian history class. So we're here to uncover those secrets. That's right. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. How about Monday night? because my daughter will be with her dad that night. I hold my breath. For sure this will scare him off, or he'll lie and say it's cool, but then totally ghost me. Instead, he says, Great, Monday. And then, How old's your daughter? I have a son. And he takes out his phone and shows me photos of a beautiful baby boy. His son is an infant still, and this puts me on guard. Obviously. So I ask if he's married, and what's the deal with asking me on a date when he has a nine-month-old? He tells me his son's mother is one of his best friends, a woman he sleeps with casually, but they've never dated or ever even been a couple, and they are not and have never been in love. He says when she got pregnant, she wanted to keep the baby because she was nearing 40 and nowhere near finding a boyfriend to make that happen. He says he always wanted to be a dad, and maybe not this way or before he was 35, but since this was the way, this was the way. He stopped working at a small music studio and got a job at a major bank to support them. That's what I'm doing now, he says. I'm not married, I'm not in a relationship, I'm a dad, and she's my son's mother. I believe him. I believe everyone, always. But I actually really believe him, and I really like him. He seems so effortless and genuine and just a guy, a down-to-earth, regular, sweet guy. We continue to dance and laugh until 2 a.m. when my girlfriends and I all leave. He texts me 10 minutes later to say he can't wait till Monday when we'll be less drunk and can really get to know each other. And that's what we do. Three weeks later... Revival is standing in my kitchen, cooking. I just stand there dumbly, staring at his shoulders, his neck, the way the muscles in his arms tense as he grabs a knife or reaches for a pan. I can't believe there's a man in my kitchen and he's cooking me dinner. This man is a sweet, real man. 
he's also the first man I've actually dated in the true sense of the word. For our second date, we went to see a movie, and he had his arm around me the whole time. As the opening credits rolled, he leaned in close and whispered, If this movie sucks, then you better be ready for my hands to be all over you. I giggled like a teenager. (laughs) It felt so good to be in a movie theater with the arm of a cool, good-looking man around me and the laughing and the popcorn and the regular people things. It felt so good after such a long stretch of getting drunk, meeting men, getting drunker, then having drunk sex. This felt different. It felt normal. And here he is, in my kitchen, cooking up jerk salmon with spinach. I hate salmon, but not tonight. The only other man that's cooked anything in this kitchen is my father. So tonight, I'm on a cloud nine of epic proportions. I will eat salmon on this cloud, obviously. Also, I'm wearing the dress. The dress is the dress that, for whatever reason, renders them all dumb. It's my best dress for man-killing. He looks over at me, his hands dirty from food prep, his brow slightly beaded with sweat. Damn, how am I supposed to cook with you looking like that? It's so unreal this way he has about him, this thing where he tells me every chance he gets that I'm fucking awesome to behold. Remember, my self-esteem has been depleted to a big fat zero thanks to the ex-husband, and I'm only slowly building it back. So in this kitchen, one year after the bomb, with my self-esteem hovering at only 30%, yes, I am wearing the dress to get exactly this reaction. And yes, I'm wearing high heels in my own apartment. So what? It's distracting the hell out of him. I feed him bits of crackers and cheese as he works. He kisses my fingers with each bite. We just met, but this feels like heaven to me. Two people in a kitchen making dinner. I snap a photo of him as he cooks for me. This might never happen again. This thing where a sweet, good-looking man cooks for me in my kitchen, so I need photographic evidence. It's just his back in the photo. You can't see his face. Just the gorgeous place I like to rest my head. There, between his neck and his shoulder blade. Just his waist, his arms, all the places I love in this world, because they are a man's body. A man's body doing regular things, like reaching for the pepper grinder or trying to figure out how to work the timer on my oven. Once he figures out the timer, he puts the salmon in and turns and grabs me up into his arms and says, I don't even care if we eat that anymore. I swoon, literally. And then we do it right there in the kitchen. And it's so beyond all the other guys put together. It still is, actually. More than a year later, we will find ourselves still talking about it. That's how large and mythical it is. I always think about that time in the kitchen, he says in my bed one night, and I say, so do I. But back to February and the salmon in the oven. After the magic goes down, we put all our clothes back on, smoke half a joint on the balcony, and sit down to dinner. You have such nice things, he says about the table setting. And I say, of course, I was married, remember? And we laugh. My things are nice. 
crystal wine glasses, silverware, classic white china edged in platinum, all wedding gifts, all the good stuff, as the husband and I used to call it, as opposed to our everyday cutlery and plates. Now, in my new life, I use the good stuff every day. Why the fuck not? One year exactly from the end of my marriage that I didn't know was ending, I'm sitting in my own home with this sweet man eating a dinner he made me on the wedding china. The next day, I bragged to two of my friends, Big Laugh and the Bright One, about how that was the greatest night I have ever experienced since the bomb. We're having lunch at work, and I can't talk about anything else. I describe the dinner and then the sex with way too much detail, but they're good sports. They were at Revival, the club, the night I met Revival, the man, and they approve, but they're wary of how quickly I'm getting carried away. They are right. Advice from an ex-husband I have a little black book. Well, actually, it's red. A little red notebook that I began writing everything in after the bomb. I have hundreds of notebooks. I write everywhere, all the time, everything. But I also write lists. Lots of lists. So the list called Black Book inside my little red book should be no surprise to anyone. It's a list of all the men I've slept with since the husband and I broke up. Like I said, before that, the amount of men could be counted on one hand, and now, well, I'm not going to say, but it's definitely more than that. Significantly. The list is in order of appearance. It has their first and last names and the dates we slept together. There's a star rating system. Some have no stars, lousy or just whatever, There's a few with one or two stars, and the best of the best have four stars. Way to go, cute crazy guy. Nice job, PG-24. There's also a symbol system, only I can decipher, that indicates whether we went all the way or just fooled around. I know, so high school of me. That is, if I would have done this kind of thing in high school or even university, which I certainly did not. Now, you think I'm creepy, maybe even crazy, but I'm a record keeper and always have been. I've written in a journal since I was eight. I used to keep detailed lists where I ranked my favorite songs, my favorite members of Duran Duran, the boys in my class from cutest to ugliest, then from nicest to meanest. There are lists ranking the concerts I've been to, my favorite bands, my best friends, the teachers I hated. Even at a young age, I liked order. Inventory. I do love inventory. I guess it's my way of making sense of this crazy world. If that makes me crazy, so be it. In addition to my black book list, the red book also has a list that's just about the ex-husband. It details every single time we've slept together since we moved into separate apartments. There's the date, followed by the location, 
followed by a short description of the action and our state of mind. June 20, my place. After tense phone call, he comes over. No alcohol. September 18, my place. He stays for hours and hours after, lying around and talking in my bed. He kisses the top of my head and says, I love you, when he leaves. January 26, his place. Middle of the day for whole two hours while Bertie is at a birthday party. There are a lot of entries. In fact, according to this list, for the first six months after we moved into separate places, we were sleeping together three times a week. That's more than some married couples. But somewhere in the second year of separation, things start to change. March 11, his place. Me despondent, go over in moment of weakness. Feels like nothing. Big, awful fight afterward. He is terrible to me. After that night, I swore it would never be again. I felt oddly at peace with it. Every time I would see him after that, he seemed more remote, more of a stranger. The longer I went without feeling his familiar body next to mine, the easier it was to defamiliarize myself with his heart. Over time, all that was left was a residual hurt, a precise but dull pain. A dent that was never fixed properly and just rusted over, corrosive and exposed to anyone else I tried to love. You shouldn't be too good in bed, you know, the ex-husband says. It's that terrible night, the one I swore would be the last. We're in his apartment, lying in his bed, post-sex, Bertie asleep in her room. Guys won't like that, he continues. You really shouldn't be this good the first time you're with them. And there it was. Dating advice from my ex-husband. Is this how it is then? Honestly, is this what I want? I feel like throwing up. There's suddenly no reason at all I should be lying there naked beside him. I don't want advice about sex from my own husband, ex-husband, especially ridiculous advice. I get up and put my clothes on and practically sprint across the street to my own bed. But oh, I'd be lying if I said it didn't scorch my heart from the inside out. If I said that stupid sentence hasn't haunted me since. Is it true? Am I supposed to just lie there or something? Not say what I like? What I want? Will that make a man like me more? The fact that I've seriously asked myself these questions means he still has an idiotic power over me. So that's why this time has to be the last time. You're listening to Alone, a love story. Written by me, Michelle Parisi. It's a CBC original podcast. The story editor is Veronica Simmons. Alone is mixed and produced by me and Veronica in our hometown of Toronto. I've got a lot more to share with you at cbc.ca slash alone. The stories behind the story I'm telling, photos, and a lot about music. 
stick with me. I want to tell you about standing on the sidelines. Hey, there's another CBC original podcast I want to tell you about, The Fridge Lane. It's all about the hidden stories behind the food we eat. Hosted by culinary critic Chris Nuttall-Smith. Part science, part business, part psychology, each episode reveals the unexpected backstory of one food phenomenon. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Alone. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash original podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.